Hello and welcome to Veterans for Responsible Leadership's podcast, Accountable America. My name is Jason Belcher. I'm the producer and co-host. I'm an Iraq veteran and current, uh, my day job is I'm a museum director. With us today, we have the founder and president of VFRL, Dr. Dan Barkov, who is a former Navy SEAL and a current emergency room physician. And our guest today is Mr. Ken Harbaugh, who is on the board of VFRL and is a former naval aviator, also hosts a podcast, uh, Warriors in Their Own Words, which, by the way, I listened to a couple of episodes of that yesterday. I thought it was uh, fantastic. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ken. I'm really excited to talk to you. I feel like the, the tables have turned finally. I'm going to actually get to interview you. Um, I've, I've been on Ken's, Ken's pods a couple times uh, in, the, in the past, and uh, it was a good time. And, and um, I'm really excited to hear your perspective on, on some of these things that are, are going on in our country. So, you well, know, maybe yeah. happy, to, happy to be here. This is your this is your chance for payback. That's uh, right. That's right. Um, so, you know, maybe we could start off, Ken, you know, for for listeners who might be unfamiliar with your work. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Where are you from? You know, what's your uh, what's your sports team? <laughs> I grew up all over. Uh, son of, a, of an Air Force pilot, actually. Long line of pilots. My grandfather flew uh, B-17s in, in the Pacific. My dad flew Phantoms over Vietnam. <clears throat> and uh, in high school, I had no desire to, to follow that path. My brother went to the Air Force Academy, was an F-16 pilot. And, you know, I thought I was going to go off and be a hippie. I, I, I was the, the kid in college who played the guitar on the beach, right? Came home from Australia with a with a fake earring to freak out my mom. But I had this, uh, this, I guess, epiphanous moment realizing I was studying abroad and because um, I, you know, I was lucky. I got a, I got a, a full ride to, to college and mostly had fun and realized I really hadn't done anything to deserve the privileges I was enjoying. And literally the week I got back to the States, I walked into the Navy recruiter's office and I said, uh, I picked the Navy because, you know, my whole family's Air Force. I thought, you know, that might piss off my dad a little bit. I was there you go. shocked and disappointed when he was proud of me. Um, but I, I went the Navy route, was a walk-on, so didn't go through ROTC, much less the Academy, but got a pilot slot through OCS and did that for nine years. And uh, I'm going to come right back to that, but, you know, this – this uh, fascinating biographical tidbit that you were an aspiring hippie. Can you hack, man? Are you a hacky sack guy? No. no. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't that authentic. <laughs> all right. All right. I guess uh, um, we'll save that for another time, some some lessons in hacking. But um, so and then what what airframe did you fly? Uh, I flew the EP3, which is a variant of the Orion, but they only made a handful of, of EP3s. And I did well enough in in flight school that I got to pick my uh, airframe and yep. while most of the guys were going fighters, you got to remember this was, uh, the, the late nineties and I, it was peacetime and I wanted to do something where I could fly real missions, real world missions and, and lead a crew. And in the Navy, the place to do that in the late nineties was the EP three. You might recall that was the airframe, that got forced down over China. I flew that actual plane many times, uh, and we were on the the front lines flying missions off of Russia, China, North Korea, uh, North Korea, and it was it was a chance to do something before 9/11 kicked off that felt real, and I, I loved it, and I miss it almost every day. 
I, I do remember that incident. The uh, you know the the airframe, the aircraft that was forced down. That was kind of one of the first um, you know real crises. I mean, it certainly seems like small potatoes once nine eleven hit, but in in the Bush presidency, that was uh, that was that was big news for a while. Yeah, it was kind of an age of innocence when I look back and think about how worked up we were over that. It was like the first real test of the Bush presidency, and of course, it was my squadron. We went into to high gear and looking back i mean compared to 9 11 and the decades of war and the trillions of dollars spent on it that followed we we really were living in pax americana at, at that yeah. point, not appreciating it yeah yeah absolutely no i think that's right man i think um you know it's the the halcyon days of, of innocence or you know the yeah. the really early bush administration pre prior to, to 9 11 so you know, what What were you doing on 9-11? Where were you? I'm glad you asked. Uh, it That was a, a life-changing moment, obviously for all of us, but professionally for me, I was in a BOQ somewhere in Japan. We had just delivered my, my EP3 for what was a fairly long-term maintenance project, and I was watching the TV as the second plane hit because I was glued to the coverage after the first plane. And at that point, we all knew I got my crew together. We all knew that it was going down. And I called the flight line and I said, that, that plane's got to be ready like tonight. <laughs> it was supposed to be a two-week turn. Um, and I said, "We, you know, whatever we have to do, we're getting that plane ready. Uh, and sure enough, we were the first um, – Air breathing Intel uh, ISR airframe on watch off of North Korea and countries like that in the in the hours after 9/11 because there was a real fear that our adversaries would see it as a an opportunity America at its weakest and you know North Korea might decide to do something insane uh, but we were up in the air pretty pretty quickly after that North Korea and insane that doesn't sound right Ken I don't know. <laughs> You know, um, I, I think one of the things that I that really stood out for me in that moment, uh, we were we're basically on R and R. I mean, there's not a lot you can do when your plane is yeah. getting its engines changed. And I had taken my crew to Hiroshima, um, which was the the closest big city to the base where we were where we were getting the maintenance done. And we had visited like the site of the the first atomic bomb drop. And I just had this this fear that man we're going to do it again this is the kind of thing that precipitates a nuclear response and and that was on my mind that's how i mean talk about the age of innocence disappearing in an instant up until yeah. that point the biggest thing that had happened in my professional career uh, was the um the collision between uh, pr32 that air airframe and the chinese f8 and Boy, that seemed just so, so insignificant in comparison. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was life changing. I was, I was uh, in buds in dock at the time, so you know, I, I hadn't even started, I hadn't even classed up, as we said, and um, just kind of waiting around. And I remember watching the stuff on, you know, on the TVs with everyone else, and and um, you know, it felt, it felt monumental. It felt you know, what it must have felt like for, you know, in, in Pearl Harbor, at least for those of us who were, were wearing, wearing a uniform at that point. Yeah. Um, and so, 
you know, you, you end up getting out, right? And you, what happens next? Well, that, that itself was a tough decision. I got out in 05 at the height of the Iraq war. And I'm sure both of you can, can relate that there's really, it's one of the toughest professional decisions you can make in the profession of arms is getting out in the middle of a war, leaving your buddies behind. But I had a two week old um, daughter and I, you know, better people than I stayed in. I got out and went back to school, got my law degree, I taught for a while and then helped launch a veterans nonprofit. And, and that started a series of those uh, wound up with me helping to lead Team Rubicon and serving as the president of, of Team Rubicon Global. And, uh, you know, for, for those who might be unaware, what is, what is Team Rubicon? Team Rubicon is a disaster relief organization that repurposes the skills and experiences of military vets to redeploy them as disaster responders. I haven't been a leader in the organization for many years, but I think there are well over 200,000 veterans now and multiple missions at any given time. I mean, when I, when I started, there were just a handful of us basically working out of a warehouse, and now it's a uh, national, probably international organization. They've got international missions right now, certainly. And anytime there's a disaster, whether you hear about it or not, Team Rubicon is usually one of the first organizations there. What is it you think, or what, it, what about veterans, you know, people who've served, you know, whether it's, you know, a three-year enlistment or somebody who serves 30 years, what, what do you think about veterans getting out of the military and desiring to, to continue to serve? What, what, is, that, is that unique? Um, I mean, it's, it's not unique, but there are a couple of characteristics about veterans that that create that tendency and you have to remember that we have an all-volunteer force now people the vast majority who join the military do so out of a a desire to serve and that desire doesn't go away when you take off the uniform so that's part of it this service gene that veterans possess another part of it and this cuts both ways i, I hope i'll get to explain that but it's the desire to be part of something greater than oneself, to be part of a, a, a team that's pursuing a mission. Uh, and the last part of it is that desperate need among some vets for, for camaraderie, for brother slash sisterhood that, that we feel so keenly when we leave the military. I mean, my transition out of the military was relatively easy when I when I look back on it. I had a supportive family. <clears throat> I had a, a career path laid out. Going to law school didn't end up practicing law, but you know I, I had a plan, and it was still rough for me psychologically. And then I think about the hundreds of thousands of vets who don't have all that, and that sense of of team and camaraderie and and purpose is ripped away like overnight. I mean, I remember driving to the out-processing station, Bupers in the Navy. Mm -hmm. Yep. And um, the the clerk put my DD-214 down in front of me, and there was one empty block on it for my signature. Uh, I used to remember <clears throat> the number of that block. I think it's 24. And I 
I realized as I was putting my my pen down that man, once I sign this, I'm no longer a Navy pilot. Like once I sign this, that that part of me is gone. And there was a real moment's hesitation. I mean, I signed it right because yeah, you know, yeah, I wanted to grow my hair out. But um, I I had this real identity crisis, even though I had everything to look forward to and. I just I've spent so much time thinking about how we address that, especially for those who who don't have that safety net. And, you know, you see what happens when the wrong groups get a hold of them, the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or the others that need to feel a part of something uh, is is really deep and can be manipulated. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I. I had kind of a similar experience in the sense I, I had a plan. Um, but, you know, especially that first year, 18 months of being a civilian, you know, we spend all this time uh, and, and sort of attention on, you know, boot camp, right? You know, getting taking someone from civilian to soldier or civilian to sailor or what, what have you. And, you know, like you said, getting out, uh, you know, five, five days, nine to five at, at Bupers or, or whatever. And then, you know, you're, you're on your own and it really can be disorienting. It, it, it um, you know, I, I think it's, it's really hard, um, even with a plan, even with, uh, you know, loved ones were there to help you. Um, you know, I often think of, folks going back to their hometown and you know like you said they're they're really they're they're not gonna they're gonna look for something to fill that void they are and if the wrong people are there to provide it we see what happens yeah yeah well you know the the reason i'm so excited to you to talk to you ken you know above all else is you've, you've really demonstrated um an interest and, and a commitment to, to what, what I call, you know, moral courage, right? I didn't invent the term, obviously, but, you know, trying to do the right thing despite, uh, you know, personal cost. And, and I view it differently from, you know, physical courage, you know, the, the running into the burning house to, to save the, you know, the, the person in the house or, or storming the machine gun nest on, on Tarawa or, or what have you. But, you know, moral courage is a really fascinating subject to me because by definition, it's, it's requiring you to do something that's kind of, kind of put you on the outs. You know, it's, it's, it's based in our need for connection. And the courageous part is putting those connections aside to, to do what you think is the right thing. And I think, you know, in your, your podcast, Burn the Boats, um, do, you, do you view that similarly? Yeah, I do. I mean, I don't know how specific you're going you're gonna to be, but <laughs> some of the things you might point to as, as indicators of moral courage and in my background are as much a result of naivete and not realizing just how much a decision might cost. I would like to think I would, you know, do those things all over again if I, if I knew better. Um, but you know, sometimes you just, you do the right thing and hope for the best and you power through even, even if the best doesn't materialize. Um, so you, you know, you got out, you moved to Ohio, yeah. And you ran for Congress. 
Tell us about that. Well, more or less. I mean, I did the <laughs> veteran stuff in between. Yep. Uh, like I said, got my got my law degree, taught, loved teaching, absolutely loved it. And, you know, 2015, you saw this insane Republican primary. And I was in my own bubble, like so many of us were. I mean, I still talk to, you know, a lot of my, my military buddies, but um, in my in my orbit, the the idea that America could elect someone like Donald Trump was just unfathomable. And, and even though I was living in a, a part of the country, uh, the Ohio 7th, I didn't know it had a number at the time, but I found out pretty quick, that voted for Trump by 30 points, um, I thought, you know, our better – Angels will prevail, and and we will not make that man commander-in-chief. And I made that promise to my daughters. I told them, don't don't worry, girls. We're not going to do that as a country. Because, you know, they're, they're smart. They're perceptive. They knew what kind of person he was. And I'll never forget staying up almost all night um, on election night, realizing that the worst was about to happen. And trying to figure out what I was going to say to them the next morning, because it was a school morning. I was going to have mm-hmm. to wake them up and and prepare them for the first day of, uh, well, Trump wouldn't have been president yet. But you know what I mean, this cloud that was over everything. And my oldest daughter and I had always had this this almost supernatural attachment to the word promise Right. When I promised something to her, it was sacred. And whenever she would like be up to no good or something and, and I would really need to get the truth out of her. And, and I would say, you know, do you, do you do you promise you didn't do that or something like that? You could just mm-hmm. tell by the look on her face like <laughs> we didn't mess with that word. It was a special word. And I had promised her in the run up to that election that Donald Trump wouldn't be elected. And that was the first promise that I felt that I that I broke to her. And. That very day, I, I thought about my obligation to do something about it, and I called uh, a couple of people. I called a friend of mine, uh, Seth Moulton, who had run for and won a long-shot congressional seat up in Massachusetts, and I called yep. my friend Emily Cherniak, uh, who helps long-shot candidates get elected. And I remember asking Seth, like, is this a winnable race um and he said that's that's basically the wrong question the the right question is is this the right thing to do is this an honorable race not a winnable race turns out it wasn't winnable you know when you have to swing uh a 30 percent um a trump plus 30 district it's it's uh it's pretty tough but it was an honorable race and mm-hmm. you know we we fought hard and we built a team that has gone on to do incredible things running for office in in their own districts and helping run you know other senate campaigns around the country i'm incredibly proud of what we did and it forced me well not only to to confront your idea of of moral courage but confront what it means to win in a fight like that to fight a good fight fight honorably um begin something and 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 do it with your honor 
intact and I'm I'm so proud that I did it. I mean it was a sacrifice in ways I, I can't begin to, to describe, but I guess it pales in comparison to the sacrifices that other Americans have had to make. Um, well, in some cases directly because of the election of Donald Trump. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one thing that's interesting to me about about your story is deciding to run what did it feel you I mean, let's let's cut the let's cut the the bullshit here, Ken. You're a pretty you're you're a pretty high achieving guy, right? So, you're. Uh, I'm no Navy SEAL, but yeah, <laughs> all right. But I mean, you're you're a Navy pilot. You know, you're studied at Oxford. You know, you've founded all these you know very successful uh, entrepreneurial uh, nonprofits in that space. You've you're not. Um, what did it feel like to lose? It felt bad. And I, there were a handful of us. I, I will tell you that I hope the book is written someday about that class of vets who stepped up in 2016 because it was an incredible group. You know, Loria and, yeah. and Houlihan and Cheryl. Uh, and if you include like the, the CIA types, you know, Slotkin, I mean, Jason Crow won, yep. um, Jared up in your corner of the country. Um, most of them prevailed, uh, mm-hmm. and as they, as they should have, um, a few didn't like Amy McGrath. Um, but almost all of them reached out to me afterwards. Uh, and you know, uh, one or two who, who didn't win and, and we, we, we've kept in touch, talked about like entering a period of of depression. I mean, cause most of yeah. the people I'm talking about were incredibly high achievers had never really lost something that big that they had worked that hard and that long for. Um, and it, it was, it was gutting, but I tell you the, the commitment to stay in the fight after losing was, was what helped pull me out. And, you know, I don't want to dwell on, the the sadness of losing uh, other people have lost lost way more but it it made me realize that this is going to be a long battle uh, Mm -hmm. and a long well i shouldn't say war this is going to be a long fight and there are going to be you know wins and losses along the way but the last thing we can afford is for uh, for folks who care deeply about this uh, to lose one of those um, one of those battles along the way and and give up and I was determined after losing that race to stay in it however I I could uh, and I, I have stayed in and I've obviously stayed in Ohio I've been been an advocate and through things like VFRL um, tried to persuade people that the the path that Donald Trump and MAGA laid out for this country is not the one we can go down. This is a slight tangent, but I'm I'm curious. And <clears throat> why are you a Democrat? What is it about you know the, the military traditionally skews conservative, right? And yeah. and um, you know I, I think those those numbers may have changed slightly with uh, the Trump administration, but in general, you know, people in the military are on the conservative end of the political spectrum. And I'm curious, 
what you felt, what, what attracted you to, to running as a Democrat, being a Democrat, and, um, and how did that feel to do it in such a red state, such a red district? So it, it was a process, but there were a couple of uh, inflection points. Consultants like to refer to inflection points, right? Um, and I grew up in a uh, not just a military family, but a Republican family. Both of my parents voted for Trump. Uh, I I was fairly typical, I guess, in my political outlook in the military. Um, voted for voted for Republicans, um, but a lot of that was just a, a, a lack of exposure. And mm -hmm. one of those one of those inflection points was the birth of, of my my second daughter um, who needed four pretty major surgeries as as an infant. And it, it forces you to rethink this whole Republican ethos of rugged individualism, right? Make it on your own. How's an infant going to make it on their own when her parents don't have the resources to, to pay for those surgeries without help, right. without the community coming together? Um, the community being our, our society and, and the kinds of social programs that, that Democrats have, have helped pass. Um, that was the first real um, eye opener. isn't isn't quite the right word because it was it was far more internal. It was like this this deep questioning of this idea that you know we can make it if if we're rugged individuals like Reagan and John Wayne wanted us to be, right? Um, and then I I just started asking all the questions I hadn't thought to ask growing up and. One of those those epiphanous moments was a conversation with with a fellow vet who you know I have come to just really really look up to. I mean he knows this, so I'll just name check him. Top Washington, you got to get him on the show. Um, met him through Team Rubicon, fellow vet, master sergeant in the Marine Corps. Um, lost his son in in Afghanistan. I mean, this mm -hmm. is a guy who has given more to his country than just about anybody I know. Um, and he helped me think about different kinds of patriotism. My patriotism was born of privilege. I talked about coming back from that study abroad. I mean, what a privileged thing to do in the first place. Signing up for the Navy because I felt like I owed my country something for all it had given me. That's one kind. Yep. The other kind is the patriotism born out of a desire to make your country live up to its promises born out of a kind of disappointment. Like we have such grand ideals as a country. We make such grand promises and we always fall short. And those who carry their nation's flag so that the country will live up to those promises, not out of a sense of gratitude, uh, but out of a, a sense of devotion to unrealized ideals, that to me was so much more inspiring as as a form of patriotism than the patriotism of, of pure gratitude. Yeah. And that really made me think about how much better our country could be if we started to, to push it to be better. And I think Democrats do that a little better than Republicans. Yeah. You know, I, I think, um, 
I always felt when I was in the military, sort of this, it was unspoken, you know, for the most part, but I always felt this sort of pressure, you know, I never saw a military base that wasn't playing Fox News around the clock, right? You know, it was just the way it was, right? Like, you know, it, the, um, the culture, the, the type of folks who serve in an all volunteer military, you know, people who volunteer are, are disproportionately from red states. And that's, that's a fact. Um, the, you know, the Democrats to me, for all my frustrations with them as a, as a political party, um, they align more with kind of my idea about the moral use of, of power and government. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I view power and strength as a positive thing. I think the United States should be able to, you know, stomp the crap out of anyone it wants to or needs to. And can I, can I quote Dan Barkoff here? Yeah, go ahead. I, I have used this tweet of yours in more than one conversation in the last couple of weeks. The only moral exercise of power is the defense of those who don't have it. Something like that. right? Exactly. Right. So, you know. We come into this world like your daughter, you know, we're, we're naked and we're weak. And, you know, for most of us, we're going to go out, you know, pretty close to the same way. You know, we're going to be old men and shrivel up. And, and while we're on the, the high part of the bell curve, it, you know, it's, it's our duty to, to try to help those who are less fortunate. Um, you know, so I, I think I agree with that. I think that's right. And I, I think that the sense of duty that we, that we all have, um, you know, stems from that. So, Ken, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, a little bit more about some, some personal moral courage that, that I think you've, you've demonstrated. And, and I don't want to dwell on this individual, um, but uh, your, your friend, your perhaps former friend, Eric Greitens, um, who um, I knew briefly uh, back in the day at Bud's and then um, ultimately had this sort of uh, checkered brief time in the, in the SEAL community and, uh, and got off to, a, a, I would say, a meteoric rise in politics. Um, and, you know, for, for those of us, for the listeners who, who might not know, maybe, Ken, you can, you can talk a little bit, you know, just briefly about about who Eric is and, and your relationship with him as it started. Yeah, briefly, because I, I don't, if, if we can avoid making this yep. too personal. No, of course. Because I, I, you know, I think the greater lesson is, is can probably be extrapolated, but um, you know, I basically became an adult alongside Eric. We met our first day at, at Duke, uh, stayed in touch. I, I joined the Navy. He joined a couple of years later. We never served alongside each other, though we served at the same time. And um, as as I was finishing up law school, obviously we you know stayed in close contact. Um, went out to, to Oxford to visit him, and and we we started the mission continues together, which is a phenomenal organization. Was continues to be, uh, and. You know, it, it did it did great work. Obviously, Eric pivoted and uh, went into Republican politics and was elected governor of Missouri. And there were a couple of of, of moments that really 
really strained slash broke the the relationship and you know it was painful when you have to choose between friendship and your country and I, I think probably few people before Trump ever faced that dilemma I think a lot since then since the election of Trump have especially so that's the- so that's what I want to talk about that's what I want to ask you is few people in such a direct and public way have had to do so um, and so you know, for for the listeners who don't know, is is uh, um, Mr. Greitens uh, ran for the Senate this past cycle uh, in a in a Republican primary in Missouri, and and both uh, Ken and I um, uh, released videos, you know, kind of talking to the camera, um, saying that we we felt that uh, the folks in Missouri would be better served with uh, without him as their senator, um, in so many words, and so. Ken, do you have a almost a, a hierarchy of of loyalty? Uh, you know, like oh I, yeah, I guess I do. Um, it's funny. There was a, a game I was playing years ago with my with my brother, who's you know pretty patriotic dude as well. Uh, and and one of these questions is on. They're like, God, family, country. How do you rank? Yeah, and, yeah. and country, you know, ranks pretty high up there. Um, so the the short answer is is yes I I do although I, I it's not like I'm not fully conscious of it um, and uh, I'll I'll beat you to the question I mean the the thing that that pushed me over the edge uh, and that would in any any circumstance friend or not is is when people start to promote violence and provoke their more vulnerable followers to to do things that that hurt other people Um, Mm -hmm. and and that was the line that was crossed when you're when you're provoking people to acts of violence um i mean someone's got to call you out yeah i think that's right i mean you know, I, I, I hope, I don't know that it's true, but I hope that, I hope that the, the, the heat has turned down a little bit after this last cycle. I, I you know, I, I don't see much evidence that it's true, but I don't know. There's, there's a feeling that perhaps the, the tension is, is lessening a little bit. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know though. I, I certainly think, I certainly th- still think that we've, we've got, you know, real issues. Um, we've got, um, you know, essentially domestic terrorists who are, you know, many of whom were once served in uniform, um, who are, are, you know, now doing things. I mean, you, you, see, you saw it up in Michigan with the, the Whitmer kidnap plot and you see it with, uh, you know, the seditious conspiracies, uh, convictions related to January 6th. And, um, it, it's a scary time. Um, but you know, I, I'd like to think that, that Trumpism or, or Trump himself, at least, is sort of having a, a waning, although still significant influence um, on American politics. But, um, you know, I think, you know, from from one vet to another, Ken, I think you did the right thing, man. Um, you know, I'm, I, I've always been impressed with your 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 moral courage. And, and so I, I appreciate that. Um do you feel how do we get out of this national moment? Like, how, what's the what's the way forward? I mean, you know, 
in my most cynical moments, I'm sort of like, well, we just hold the line until we all die and our kids have better, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I mean, it, I mean that that's its own kind of hopefulness. I do think that my kids' generation has no patience for the <clears throat> the stuff that they're being forced to inherit um like they're going to do a hell of a lot better than than our generation uh, so but but i don't want to wait that long right yeah. i don't, I don't want to wait until that trump demographic dies off because that's just too long to wait i don't quite share your <clears throat> your optimism that the these these threats are are in a in abeyance that that you know the tempers have cooled. I think on the surface they may have, but you scratch the surface and that anger is still there. I mean, you just look yeah. at at polling data of the number of Republicans who still believe the election was stolen or that political violence might be necessary, and it's at the highest levels since the civil war um and you know the difference between now and say the 60s when we had widespread societal violence is that the the perpetrators of that violence today uh, the elements <clears throat> at the front of these these violent and democratic efforts like the proud boys mm -hmm. for the first time since the civil war have the cover of a major political party yeah not that hasn't happened in in a very long time and and when it does happen in this country it doesn't end well i mean you have a group that has been named as a terrorist organization by the government of canada the proud boys called out by the president yeah. president trump during a presidential debate not called out um like stand back and stand by right and yeah we'll just stand back and stand by um I think you have to look to the 1920s in America for another example as dangerous, and that was regional when the the KKK, a domestic mm -hmm. terrorist movement, had political cover from a major American party. Right. And when you look at elements within the Republican Party today defending the January 6th insurrectionists, exhorting their followers to resort to violence if necessary this gun fetish which you know i would love to interview you about again like what is it with the right and and guns i think it's it's actually a reflection of some deep insecurity but it's you know it's oh you mean so you mean perhaps the insecurity dangerous. of not volunteering for the 20-year war right <laughs> yeah yeah we're on the same page there like the number of um of cosplay clowns uh, who didn't lift a finger when the country actually needed them is, is just off the charts. I, it doesn't make them any less dangerous though. What, what did oh, Max sure. Rose say during, I, I love his quote. He's a former Congressman from New York. <laughs> love to say a clown with a machine gun still has a machine gun. Right. 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 And yeah. We can make fun of these boogaloo boys and proud boys all we want, but they can still blow shit up. Absolutely. You know, I think, I think, I think the, uh, you know, people, people make a lot of, you know, noise about, you know, civil war, et cetera. 
um, you know, on, on social media, or they did at least in the, you know, in the, in the days surrounding January 6th and things like that, that I never truly worry about that. I mean, the, the elements for that are not there, right? There, there is a difference between, um, you know, a bunch of guys parading around with their, you know, their ARs and, uh, and, you know, having command and control and logistics and, you know, and territory and, and all of these sorts of things that Robert E. Lee had. Right. So, however, that doesn't diminish the, you know, in some ways it probably heightens the potential for, you know, serious real violence um, in, in the sense that, you know, when you take, when you give military weapons and, uh, and, and military, uh, equipment to a population and remove all of the military discipline and UCMJ and military culture and traditions. Um, I agree. That's a, that's a dangerous spot to be in. And I think we've seen it with, you know, Randy Weaver, Timothy McVeigh. I mean, it's, it's, it could happen again. I think it will happen again. Yeah, I think it will happen again. We've, we've come very close recently and by the grace of God have avoided things like, a public execution of Governor Whitmer right. in, in Michigan, not by the grace of God, by the hard work of FBI yeah. agents yeah. Who, who tracked down those conspirators, two of whom were Marines, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I worry that it's a matter of time before something like that happens. And if, if civil war does revisit our shores, it's not going to be two armies facing off. It's going right. to be widespread widespread violence um, pocketed and, and the kinds of, of, of things that the the Boogaloo Boys and Proud Boys want at the Michigan State Capitol um, right. but with a lot of guns. Uh, so I, I don't think we're even close to being out of the woods. No, I, do, I think you're right. I don't, I don't think we're out of the woods. Um, I, I'm hopeful that I'm hopeful that Donald Trump does not win the presidency in 24. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that would be the the straw that broke the camel's back for the old uh, the old republic. But um, Ken, thank you so much for your time today. You know, that was that was a terrific conversation. I know I was hitting you with some uh, <laughs> uh, some heavy stuff there, man. But um, you know, where where can our listeners find you uh, if uh, if they so desire? Burn the boats. That's uh, our our political podcast. Uh, you guys mentioned warriors in their own words at, at the top, um, but we got a, a great lineup on on burn the boats uh, coming up. Just talked to Tammy Duckworth a couple days ago, and oh, wonderful. he has some pretty powerful opinions on on the threats posed by violent extremism and and the cover that Republicans are providing. Uh, but yeah, you can find that wherever as they say wherever you get your podcasts awesome ken thanks for thanks for coming and uh as always keep up the good work man thank you dan and thank you ken for that excellent discussion and thank you to the audience for listening if you'd like to find more find out more about vfrl you can find us on facebook or twitter or at www.vfrl.org 